Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Okay, why don't we go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm a research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program where we are devoted to closing gender gaps in uh, economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. And um, I, I'm here to introduce our speaker today. I typically forget to mention this, but we are on podcast. To, okay, so be, beware. <laughs> if anybody even censors around these things anymore. Um, the, um, I'm really thrilled to uh, introduce our speaker today. Jennifer uh, Berdahl is the uh, Montalbano Professor of Leadership Studies, uh, Gender and Diversity, um, at the University of British Columbia uh, Sauter School of Business. And um, Jennifer's work, is I've admired her work for so long, and it, 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 she does some very important work around um, prescriptive stereotypes, stereotypes about how we think men and women should behave, how they should fulfill these ideals, and then the implications of um, uh, people's fulfillment or attempt to, attempts to fulfill those ideals or their failure to fulfill those ideals for uh, power dynamics in the workplace, and in particular around sexual harassment. She's, um, she's not only a very important scholar, she's having um, very meaningful um, impact on practice. She's recently served as an expert witness on gender discrimination in cases um, for the U.S. Equal, Oppor Oppor Equal Opportunity Commission and then also uh, provided expert testimony for the Canadian uh, Senate and House of Commons. Her research has so much relevance to um, issues that are very important to this community, all of our Title IX discussions, but then also issues of you know, um, uh, sexual harassment uh, in the military and other things that are very um, important uh, conversations with our community. So I won't take any more time away from uh, getting to talk with her. So please join me in welcoming you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to give you sort of a fast-paced overview of research that I've done related to the development of sexual harassment as a concept and going into the selectiveness treatment of people based on gender. And it is really focused on understanding the pattern of the problem and the potential source of the problem. And I'm hoping that at the end we can also discuss some of the possible interventions and solutions to the problem. Uh, let's see if I can work this well. So from sexual harassment to selective mistreatment, the gender regulation at work. This isn't working. Hmm. Unless I'm doing it wrong. Okay. No, that was me. Okay. So are we in the best of times or the worst of times for gender <laughs> equality? In some ways, we're facing both uh, discussions in the public debate that, on the one hand, women have made more progress than ever in education and also as breadwinners within the household. But on the other hand, there's a lot of talk about the stalled gender revolution in terms of wages, desegregation of the labor force, and also women making it to the top leadership positions. <coughs> so. I'll sit here first. You know, you know, I'll sit. I think she's. I think she went to get another one. So why don't you, you, okay. you nod and I'll, I'll forward. So just an overview of degrees conferred to women. We have more women than men at this point earning bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, and doctorates. So women are better educated than men. Eighty-four percent of wives are as or better educated than their husbands at this point. When I 
Like you just signal. That's perfect. <laughs> just you, you, okay. And then um, as breadwinners, we know that this has received a lot of attention recently. 40% of households with children under the age of 18 in them have women as um, primary breadwinner. 38% of wives now out-earn their husbands. And we now have men doing more child care in the home than ever before with 41% of the child care of um, children under 13 is now being done by men. Oh, is this going to work now? Yes, it does go. Okay, great. Thank you. But then at the same time, progress on the gender wage gap has slowed. You guys are all very familiar with these statistics. So we made really great progress in the 20 years between 1973 and 1993. But in the last 20 years have made very little progress. There's been a real slowdown. And we also still have a very segregated workforce. So these are occupations with at least 5% of the male or and or female workforce in them representing about 80% of the male and female workforce. And if you look at the numbers of men and women in these occupations, virtually all of them are gender segregated. So that you know, management has a majority of men through installation, maintenance, and repair. And then when you get to food preparation and service, um, you get a little bit more equality, but then it starts going toward the female-dominated occupations office and administrative support. So you see that virtually all of the uh, men and women in the workforce, 80% are in a occupation that is male or female dominated. Okay. And then when you look at median weekly earnings, men make more than women in all of the occupations, the same occupations, and then male occupations, especially high prestige ones, tend to make more than women's. But a lot of the earnings is also accounted for by the vertical segregation of the workforce so that you have this real drop off in leadership positions as you go from the workforce to board seats to executive officers to CEOs with less than 5% of CEOs in Fortune 500 companies. Um, okay, so you know all this. But what I'm gonna talk about today is how social treatment in the workplace may play into these outcomes. So we have uh, sexual harassment and general mistreatment disproportionately targeted at some individuals in the workplace that will discourage people from engaging in gender atypical roles of behavior and end up keeping men and women effectively in their place. So I'll be talking about the regulatory role that these social practices play in creating the segregation and hierarchy that we continue to see. So the overview of studies that I'm going to give to you today is not man enough harassment against men. This is where my research started in sexual harassment. It's kind of an atypical angle on sexual harassment and how that led me into the sexual harassment of masculine or uppity women. And then the mistreatment of non-traditional parents, the advancement of gender incongruent employees, and then I'm gonna end with the mistreatment of ambitious female bosses. It's gonna be a little bit depressing, so. <laughs> Okay, so sexual harassment against women. I first got involved in this research in graduate school when Anita Hill was testifying um, against Clarence Thomas uh, because he had sexually harassed her. And uh, she had not actually reported it, but somebody else had reported it that she had confided in at the time. 
and then she was called to te testify on Capitol Hill. And this is one of the first instances that really raised awareness in the national conscience of sexual harassment as a problem in the workplace and really raised debate and engagement in the concept. But then, as now, sexual harassment against women was largely conceived of as a problem of male bosses sexually coercing female subordinates to engage in sexual behavior. So using economic and organizational power to gain sexual favors or um, obedience from women in the workplace. At the time, there was also some discussion of what about men? So there were some articles saying, well, men are sexually harassed too because women can have organizational and economic power over men and do the same thing, coerce them into sexual activity. Some of you may remember Disclosure. It was perhaps Michael Douglas's fantasy movie about <laughs> Demi Moore sexually harassing him as his, his boss. So um, this is how sexual harassment of men was portrayed as the mirror image of what the public conceived of as sexual harassment against women. But my colleagues and I asked, is this really the form that sexual harassment against men takes? And if, is this even harassing to men um, on average to be uh, targeted for sexual behavior and attention from women in the workplace? We reason that because of the power differences between the sexes, not only organizational and e economic power differences, which were already recognized, but also physical power differences. So we know that men on average can overpower women more easily than women can overpower men. Lending increased threat to the unwanted sexual advances from a man to a woman than from a woman to a man. And then importantly, social power. So the kind of social status and roles and norms that uh, afford men higher status than women and allow them to engage in behaviors that are disrespectful and threatening to women in a way that uh, women not necessarily threaten men. <clears throat> so our prediction was that men were less likely than women to feel threatened by the behaviors that we typically think of as sexually harassing. So researchers at the time were giving sexual harassment measures to women and to men that were designed around women's experiences of sexual harassment. And men, if they indicated experiencing any of those behaviors, were deemed to have been sexually harassed. So we're questioning whether or not that was a reasonable conclusion to make. And so we started out with a study of university students, and we asked them uh, the variety of behaviors that are typically measured as sexual harassment, and whether or not they thought that those would be threatening experiences for them. <clears throat> and not too surprisingly, men were significantly less threatened by those kinds of behaviors if directed at them by a member of the other sex than women were. So we had very significant sex differences there, with men basically falling in the middle of the scale, suggesting that they don't find these behaviors um, that psychologically threatening. Therefore, it's not very reasonable to conclude that these are psychologically harassing to men in many instances as they are to women. I'm sorry, is that like a Likert scale? Yes, that's okay. a Likert scale. From one to five, um, not at all threatening to threaten. What, what is the difference between sexual harassment, unwanted sexual attention, and sexual coercion? Oh, good question. Gender harassment includes items um, to measure sexual comments, sexist jokes, um, those kinds of ambient behaviors. Unwanted sexual attention is more directed behavior at an individual. 
asking them for dates or trying to engage them in a conversation of a sexual nature. And then sexual coercion is the quid pro quo form of harassment. Extremely rare. The most common form is gender harassment, and then unwanted sexu sexual attention, and then sexual coercion. And these are the three main forms of sexual harassment identified in the literature and designed around women's experiences of sexual harassment. So women found sexual coercion significantly more uh, threatening than the other forms, but all forms were quite high in terms of how threatening they were to women. And kind of more moderate for men. Unwanted sexual attention, the lowest. And then we also asked the question, what do men find sexually harassing? So sexual harassment as a construct has been designed around women's experiences in the workplace. But are there other forms of behaviors that men might find sexually harassing that women have not identified per se? So we asked in an open-ended question, men at a public utility company that was dominated by men, both vertically and in terms of numbers, the open-ended question, have you been sexually harassed? And if so, um, what do you think that sexual harassment looks like? Please describe your experience. And 218, or 31% of the men asked, answered this question, which was quite nice of them. And we got pretty detailed answers from many of the men. And we content coded those answers. And found this new form of harassment that had not previously been identified in the literature, which we have called not man enough harassment. So <clears throat> theoretically, this can be considered a form of gender harassment against men. So <clears throat> some of the comments included, I have felt harassed by comments such as men, you men are all alike. Men have only one thing on their minds. These comments from women and harassed by the expectation by other men that I will accept and participate in jokes and comments about women. Another man said, I feel that men, not just women, can sexually harass other men. I decided that I would take three weeks off to help my wife get adjusted to having a baby and a 19-month-old. Comments were made and my work wasn't being covered, so I ended up only taking a week and two days off. It made me feel like I wasn't a man if I chose to stay home and take care of the kids. The same attitude manifests when I asked to take time off so I can take the kids to the doctor. After all, my wife works outside the home and we try to share these types of chores equally. So we conducted follow-up studies that included measures of this form of harassment against men to see how prevalent it was and what its effects were for men. If you have questions as I go, please ask. I wonder if that varied based on um, profession. Because my thought is my husband's a teacher, mm -hmm. and so if he were ever to have to take off work for things, it's seen very differently because he's seen as a nurturer because his profession encourages that. Yeah. Um, so I, I just wondered what the professions were of that, or if you could kind of give in general. Yeah, um, the, the most famous legal cases at least come from very hyper-masculine environments and dominated professions where this kind of masculinity is being really regulated and enforced in them. Um, so that's a good point. Uh, so these follow-up studies are all in male-dominated occupations. One is a food processing plant, um, another one of a year uh, follow-up on the public utility company originally studied, and then faculty and staff at a large university. And the percent of men who experienced not man enough harassment was relatively low, so it was usually 
around 10%, 5 to 10%, depending on the context. The university is probably the least male-dominated environment of these three. <clears throat> and then in the um, in those experiences, the men who did experience it tended to experience it from other men. So this was a dynamic that was going on between men, where men were regulating this kind of masculine performance in men in the workplace. But some women did. So, so this is in some sense a, a similar question. It, it seems that, um, as, as you acknowledged in the beginning, part of harassment rests on the power of the harasser. So, so I wonder about concluding that it's men that's doing this, because you can imagine that if you were in organizations, not so much teaching because there's this caring environment which might reduce it overall, but you can imagine if women were in power, um, we have no reason to assume that women are somehow above this sort of thing, right? So, so I, I'm wondering whether you think it's about men or whether it's you think it's about being in power and therefore being able to have the freedom to harass? That's a good question. So, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that these are slightly above the base rates, but just bit on base rates alone, we would be expecting more men than women to be engaging in behaviors in male-dominated environments. Um, but it is slightly above, so it does suggest that there's something about men that's motivating um, them to engage in this behavior, possibly. So some of the literature on precarious masculinity and the importance of the male identity would suggest that this is an identity that is particularly important for men to try to enforce and to demarcate um, within the workplace more than women. Um, but there's also a power dynamic, as you point out, so that if men are in more positions of power in order to do so, both organizationally but also socially speaking, they're going to be directing this behavior more than women. But women do engage in this behavior against men. So in one of the studies I'm going to show later on, it did take place in a female-dominated organization, and women were engaging in some of this. Thank you. But it's a way of cutting a man down. You can cut a man down based on his masculinity, whether you're male or female. You're just more motivated to do so if you're male. Yeah? So were they all cases where the man was taking the time off to help a woman? So it's I mean, I wonder if he took a month off to climb, climb Mount Everest, if they would treat <laughs> Uh Yeah, so we were trying to, you know, capture the things that the men had brought up in very general terms. So we had items like called you a gay or sissy or fag or some similar name or teased you for um, engaging in behavior that women typically engage in and those kinds of things, but we didn't ask about leave taking per se, but later on we can relate that to their actual leave taking. Yeah, they probably wouldn't get teased for climbing Mount Everest because <laughs> that would be a very masculine performance. <clears throat> and of the now four types of harassment, I mean, not man enough harassment is technically a form of gender harassment, but we separated that from the gender harassment items that were written around women's experiences of sexist comments and sexual comments. Not man enough harassment was significantly more harassing to the men than these other forms of harassment that Michael Moore was concerned about in disclosure. <laughs> so <clears throat> it's interesting that what we usually think of as sexual harassment, at least from a man's perspective, the most threatening form is being teased about his masculinity in the workplace. <clears throat> 
So even though not all men experience this, I think this is a really important point for um, policy and law, is that not everyone has to experience them to be affected by it, right? Um, so this kind of behavior is pressuring men at work and in the home to be a man. So you know, if they're not engaging in those traditional roles in the home, they might face retaliation at work. Um, and as well, they have to engage in those behaviors in the workplace. And then obviously this has spillover effects for women in the workplace and also in the home in terms of who is expected to do what. And it's a form of keeping men in that more masculine role in place. And just like on the playground, one boy can get um, singled out as the sissy and teased and taunted and all the boys are affected by that and all the boys know that that's how you're supposed to behave. This can happen in the workplace. So at least in some of the legal cases I've been, uh, been an expert witness on, this is a um, thing that really has to be emphasized and pointed out that it doesn't have to be happening to every member of the class. It could be really happening to a minority um, of that class, but nonetheless affecting everyone. <clears throat> so you're probably familiar with the, the on Cayley decision and the fact that this form of sex discrimination was recognized a couple of years later by the Supreme Court. Um, so there was a male roustabout on an oil rig who was relentlessly tossed, uh, teased and harassed about his masculinity and it got to the point where he was even threatened with rape in the showers and he quit his job out of fear for his safety. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court and was deemed a form of sex discrimination under Title VII and also a form of sexual harassment. This is something that we still are working on in Canada, this recognition. <clears throat> and in the New York Times, I was delighted to see a few years later that this was really getting more national recognition as a form of harassment, sexual harassment. <clears throat> I should point out too that the Ankele decision was written by Scalia and supported by Clarence Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> so, sexual harassment against women. This made me think <coughs> this whole sort of reimagining sexual harassment, at least from a through a male's perspective, made me think, well, what if sexual harassment against women, as we typically conceive of it, is really not women enough harassment. What if this is not about a male boss per se or someone trying to get into the pants of a female in the workplace or use their organizational power, but rather to penalize women who step out of line in the same way that men are being penalized for stepping out of line in the workplace. So we know that most, the vast majority of sexual harassment that takes place in the workplace is gender harassment, this sort of hostile, sexist, ambient form of harassment. That's not about sexual attraction or dating. And we also know that women are most sexually harassed in male-dominated occupations, which might be consistent with either story. So it could be that they're surrounded by horny men, <laughs> or it could be that they are violating a traditional occupational role and then getting hazed for it. And a gender harassment computer experiment, which is just brilliant, um, was one of the first to suggest that this could be a matter of not woman enough harassment. So um, Anamas and colleagues found that in a um, computer interaction with a supposed female interaction partner in college, 
men who received a message from a woman saying that she wanted to major in education and be a kindergarten teacher, etc., so that she could spend more time supporting her husband and family at home later on, um, versus men who received the same yeah, the message from another female with the same name, etc., saying she wanted to major in management and economics so that she could be a bank manager. And she knew that that was a traditionally male occupation, but uh, she thought that women were just as good as men, etc. And he was given a variety of images that he could reply and send back to her with. And men who were highly male identified were significantly more likely to choose an offensive pornography image to send back to the non-traditional female. Were these students with same peer, peer, peer? Yeah, peer, peer. Yeah. So these were male students who thought that they were interacting with another female student. And then after they sent the offensive porn, their sense of male identity was enhanced. So it suggests that there was a psychological mechanism going on behind this, uh, at least gender harassment against women. <coughs> So that was a really neat demonstration. And we know that most gender and sexual harassment takes this ugly form. So have, have you guys seen North Country? So this is really what sexual harassment tends to look like. This is based on the actual case of Lois Jensen and Eveleth Taconite Company in northern Minnesota. Um, my graduate school uh, mentor who studied sexual harassment, Louise Fitzgerald, was the expert witness on this case. And most of it was you know, smearing feces on the locker, threatening the women, um, and hostile sexual behaviors. And then the one woman who really stood up to the harassment was the one who became the primary target for it. And so the, the movie really demonstrated that well. <coughs> and again, that was in a male-dominated occupation. So if we start thinking about sexual and gender harassment as a form of penalizing people who step out of traditional gender roles, we can draw on social identity threat theory to understand how this takes place. So distinctiveness threat is the concept of blurring lines between important social categories and identities. So when men act like women, or women act like men, boys will be girls and girls will be boys, and people start just looking like people. <laughs> it threatens to erase those social categories and then the privileges and identities that come along with them. So this should be particularly threatening to the higher status identity, members of the higher status identity, but it can also be threatening to members of the lower status identity who are in some ways invested either through sacrifice or through benefit in these kinds of social identities. So to the extent that <coughs> women also derive some kind of benefit in their narrow sense from a feminine identity, they could also experience a threat when they see somebody blurring distinctions between the genders. <coughs> and the distinctiveness threat can be triggered or can trigger the desire to uphold the distinctions between these social categories by engaging in the other forms of social identity threat against the source of the distinctiveness threat. So basically what it does is trigger desire to say, hey, wait a minute, there are men and women and these are meaningful distinctions and let's try to uphold them. And there's different ways that you can do that. So again, drawing on social identity theory, 
I theorize that the other three forms of threat are the likely ways in which people are going to retaliate against those who pose a distinctiveness threat. And this <clears throat> captures what is going on with sexual harassment in the workplace. So acceptance threat is the idea that <clears throat> you don't belong in this group. Um, so if a distinctiveness threat is posed, a man, for example, engaging in a traditionally female behavior or role, then men can retaliate against him by making him experience acceptance threat. You don't really belong, you're not a real man. Okay? Women can also experience this with, you don't belong here, you're not good enough for the job. <clears throat> this is a man's occupation. So not man enough harassment and exclusion and marginalization of women in male-dominated occupations is a form of acceptance threat of rejecting somebody from that higher status category reserved for real men and <clears throat> masculinity. Yes. Can I just ask you, why do you call it acceptance threat rather than rejection threat? The, I'm just drawing on the social identity literature. Okay, okay, because it's So the, brands come and colleagues call it that, okay. but yeah. I think that's a good point though, I guess we <laughs> frame it as. Okay, just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're subjecting them to an acceptance threat. You're not accepted, but mm -hmm. it is rejection. And then category threat is almost the opposite. It's putting somebody in a category that they don't really want to belong to or be identified with or that is a lower status category. So typically this will take the form of likening someone to a woman or femininity um, in a gender hierarchical system. So, oh, you're just a typical woman. Uh, or even women's meetings uh, that are organized in traditionally male-dominated occupations that draws attention to the fact that they're female um, can be experienced as a category threat by the women in that context. So one of the things that this reminds me of is when I was an assistant professor in a business school, um, the male administrators thought, oh, you know, we need to support the women in the business school, so they would hold lunches for the women. And female staff, female graduate students, female faculty, everybody was invited to go to this lunch, and men didn't have a lunch like this, and we were supposed to stand up and boast about our recent accomplishments, <laughs> forcing us to overcome our failure to lean in. And, <laughs> and the women in the room did not experience that as an empowering uh, thing. <laughs> you know, we all felt like we were just being lumped into this, oh, you guys all have uteruses, and so, you know, we're going to support you. But the women faculty didn't really have anything in common with women staff, and it just seemed like a very weird way to categorize people at that workplace. Yeah. I wonder if this goes even further. So I was having a conversation with a guy who's running the gender initiative at, Mc at McKinsey yesterday, and he was talking about, well, they're doing all of these efforts, and they're not working. And it, all of these efforts, essentially, are all like women's things. So now they have maternity leave, but still not matern paternity leave. They have um, this wonderful thing where you can put your, essentially, because it's a professional services firm, it's up or out, but you can put the brakes on for as long as you want and maintain the level that you're at at the salary that you're at, which is really a wonderful um, new way of thinking about work, but it's only available to women. Um, and, and there's a whole series of these things that they're doing for the women, and I, I, I have long realized that that's problematic for women but I wonder if that fits into this category threat you're talking about. 
Absolutely. It's, it's, it stigmatizes the activity by attaching it to women. And so it's a lower status group. We need to protect and take care of this lower status group. Um, and of course, any men who try to advocate for or use those policies are going to have this category threat experience, as well as the women who do. Yeah. It's, it's not even open to men. Thank you. So, <clears throat> sexually objectifying and stereotyping women or men. So, a lot of the harassment that takes place against men isn't just saying you're not man enough, but you know, saying you're a pussy or <laughs> things like this that liken them to women, or um, you know, doing sexual simulated sexual acts against the men that suggest that they are female. And then derogation threat is the more typical sexist comments and gender harassment experiences that were originally conceived uh, against women. So sexist comparisons, put downs, and stereotyping, suggesting that the categories of male and female are separate and that masculinity is superior to femininity. Um, when I was giving this a talk once, a guy in the audience well, women have a lower work ethic than, women, than men. That might be why they're experiencing these things that I was talking about. I'm like, okay, well, that's an example of derogation. <laughs> it turns out that that's not true. Work ethic measures don't show any sex okay. But uh, one, another example that I often experience is when my male colleagues have a, a male and a female child and they'll come to work and say they're just so fundamentally different, and, uh, et cetera. So there's just ways of, you know, even if it seems like a uh, benign statement, reifying those social categories and those stereotypes attached to them. Yeah. I think you might just answer my question. I want to clarify that for the, the last thread, it maintained the dichotomy of masculine male, feminine female, as opposed to crossing it with the other two. Is that correct? This last one? Yes. So it's definitely, you know, maintaining that dichotomy, upholding those stereotypes through statements um, and other behaviors or materials. And these are more of a personal, um, you are not a real man or you are a woman types of behaviors, yeah. Any questions about this? Okay. So in a series of studies that was published under the title of the sexual harassment of uppity women, I tested whether or not sexual harassment in general, not just gender harassment, but all those forms, unwanted sexual attention, sexual coercion, was primarily directed at women who had these more masculine personality styles or characteristics. Um, <clears throat> so not just women to male dominated occupations, but the ones who embodied more masculine behavior. So I started with a sample of undergraduates, always a good and easy place to start. And it was definitely the case that um, masculine or the women who identified themselves in the personality measures as relatively assertive and cold, uh, that is sort of aloof or tough, were sexually harassed by their male peers at school significantly more than the feminine women. So is cold, is that it, is that associated, I can see how warmth would be associated with femininity, but is cold is, uh, in on these scales associated with masculinity and then Well, this is the um, BEM sexual inventory that I gave them yeah. and so asked them to indicate. So cold may not be the best way to describe, uh, but it's a lack of 
um, that nurturing yeah. or caregiving, yeah. sensitive to the needs of others and stuff. And then I was asked, well, it could just be that those women who have those more masculine personality orientations are more sensitive to those behaviors. Mm -hmm. So they might be more likely to notice them and take offense, those feminists. And <laughs> so then I did the same survey to a different set of undergraduates as hypothetical scenarios. And how offended would they be? or how negative would they think that those experiences would be for them if they had them in the workplace. Um, and the women who have those masculine personality profiles were no more likely than the feminine women to identify those behaviors as offensive or harassing. In fact, they're slightly less likely than the feminine women to identify them. Not significantly, but that was the trend. And then a unionized sample of employees. I had three male-dominated and two female-dominated occupations or contexts and gathered data from those. And if anybody ever wants to do surveys, I suggest going through unions if they still exist. Um, in Canada, this was really great because I could just go to the union and say, I want to survey your members, and they say, well, how many, and how many organizations, <laughs> and then they would send out the survey for me. And then they would use the results to advocate for change in contracts, et cetera. And in this study, women were most harassed in the male-dominated occupations, and particularly the ones with masculine personality profiles. So here's the male-dominated versus female-dominated comparison. You see that women in the male-dominated occupations are really the primary targets for the traditional forms of sexual harassment that take place against women. Uh, but again, that could be explained by being surrounded by men who are sexually interested in them. Um, or it could be explained by the fact that they are violating a gender role. But then when you look within that male-dominated occupational set, it was really the women with the traditional or the masculine personality orientations that were targeted significantly more than the other women. Women were targeted more than men, but it was particularly those masculine women who were the um, targets for this behavior, which is more consistent with the idea that it's a gender rule violation than it is sexual interest going on here. So now you're saying masculine uh, personality traits, but yeah. just to make sure I understand, this was only personality, it didn't pertain at all to gender presentation, masculine and feminine, okay. Um, I have other data sets that I've analyzed and haven't published yeah. um, on some of those characteristics, and other people have also looked at sexual minority status, it appears that lesbians are targeted much more for this behavior. Um, again, consistent with the idea that this isn't about um, trying to date somebody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> but I think that the, the physicality of it would be really interesting too in how people present. So this is a form of gender regulation in women as well. So women were more harassed in male-dominated occupations, especially those with these masculine personality styles, pressuring women to stay in this more feminine um, presentation and behavioral style within the workplace. And then again, not that many women, I you know, have those masculine personality styles, but if all the women are seeing women like that getting targeted for this behavior, it sends a chilling message to all of them in the workplace. 
So then more recently, um, as part of a special issue in the Journal of Social Issues, it was organized by Joan Williams and others, we looked into this idea of the non-traditional parent and whether or not domestic gender role violations, not just having a behavioral style within the workplace, would target this kind of mistreatment against people. So general workplace mistreatment as well as not man enough harassment. Consistent with the first study of not man enough harassment that did suggest that engaging in non-traditional parenting styles might um, <clears throat> trigger this kind of behavior against men. So we do know that there is this inconsistency for women between work roles and gender roles. For the ideal worker as work devoted, always available to the employer, always putting work first, that's very consistent with the traditional male gender role as the breadwinner and the provider for the family who's always trying to maximize his incomes and earnings and potential for promotion. Very antithetical to the traditional female gender role who, on the other hand, is supposed to be family devoted. So men can be both good workers and good men, but women face this trade-off of I can be a good woman or I can be a good worker. <clears throat> so we had two studies, one of not man enough harassment and one of general mistreatment. The not man enough harassment took place in medium-sized workplaces and um, had about one-third men in the sample. 51% of them had children at home. And general mistreatment was a large public service employee com organization. And it was 81% men. So the first one was female dominated, the second one was a male dominated occupation. <clears throat> so in the female dominated occupation, back to the idea that women can also engage in this behavior, men were targeted for not man enough harassment significantly more if they had children and did relatively high levels of caregiving for them in the home. So caregiving was measured by hours per week. And so men who fell above the median were significantly more likely to experience not man enough harassment than men who fell below the median. And men without children experienced levels slightly higher than men who were more traditional fathers. So being a traditional father gets you some sort of cachet, I guess, as a man. Is this saying that women were subject to not man enough harassment? Yep. Yeah, so not man enough harassment in this sample was measured by, you know, tease you for not being tough enough. Okay. Um, so we tried to word it in ways that women could respond to it too because they were being given the same survey. And we did find that women were being teased for being too sensitive and um, not being dedicated enough to the workplace, not willing to put down family as a priority, et cetera. And it was particularly women without children who were targeted for this behavior. So even though they might be in some ways considered more manly, I guess, uh, the women with kids, they were targeted for this kind of harassment significantly more. So it was almost the opposite pattern. So that as women did more caregiving, they were treated better, or they were treated less badly. And when they had no kids, they were treated especially harshly. And then for men, it was really the, the caregiving men were treated the worst. And this aspect of the study, this little bark here, is what got a lot of media attention. 
so the harassment of caregiving men, and for some reason this pattern for women, of women without children, was not of interest. <laughs> and it's really whopping here. So this is the male-dominated organization. And this is general mistreatment. So mistreatment beyond not man enough harassment. This is ignoring, exclusion, um, put-downs. It's not sexual per se. It's just a variety of ways in which you can mistreat people measured with a 21-item measurement. <clears throat> and women without children were just overwhelmingly the target of this mistreatment. And I tried to mention this to reporters, and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who cares about that there? <laughs> um, in one presentation, somebody said, well, those are the women who have something wrong with them, so why wouldn't you expect that? Okay, well, <laughs> thank you for demonstrating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering whether that's impacted at all by like age or how far they are along in their career. Like, is it sort of the young, that are getting this the most, or is it totally independent of that? So the average age of both of these samples was in the 40s, and they'd been in their organizations for 10 to 19 years. Um, and so these were probably women who had decided not to have kids who are primarily being targeted at this behavior. Yeah. Yeah. But, but this seems like something um, quite different from the protection of gender roles that you saw in your other studies. How so? Well, so if you if you go to the previous slide, mm -hmm. this is punishing um, women for not being masculine enough. Right? So, so masculine women are being pushed to be more masculine? I have an example from a friend, um, a colleague of ours, who's a woman without children, not married right now, does gender research, and she described how like they, there's this whole issue of who would stay out late at some, like a candidate or reception or something like that, and somebody looked at her and said, what are you going to go home and take care of your cat? You know, like, why aren't you, like, where's your work ethic? You know, what do you, like, what do you think you're doing type of thing? That, that's, so I think it's, I think that's what you mean, right? It's not, it's not you're not man enough per se, but you're not fulfilling those stereotypically masculine ideal worker traits. Right. So these might be women who are you know, perceived as um, not fulfilling the female role who are nonetheless being told that you're not a man. So if you think about that um, acceptance threat, you know, like don't think you're a man type of behaviors. You're not really that tough, et cetera. It kind of looks like they're being treated like guys. Yeah, they're getting treated more, well, except they're getting treated more like the uh, caregiving guys. So it's a in total interaction. So it's an interaction between sex and their caregiving behavior. So the, the irony is that they're giving, they, 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 they should arguably be perceived as giving more than the women are in high caregiving roles, yet they're being given more harassment for exactly. not being that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and I think that goes to conformity, too, right? You're being harassed when you're not conforming to mm -hmm. the Right, right. Mm -hmm. So the pattern falls out in completely in that direction. And then, th these are significant differences between the men. It's just that they look overwhelmed by the, <laughs> the mistreatment by women. So it's, again, high caregiving men who are experiencing more general mistreatment than um, low caregiving men, and in this case, men without children, 
people experiencing the least amount. <clears throat> so it turns out that men were more mistreated when they did more caregiving, women were more mistreated when they did less, which in effect pulls men out of those caregiving roles if they're experiencing these negative social repercussions in the workplace and pushes women into those caregiving roles if they're getting treated much more kindly by their co-workers for being good mothers or caregiving mothers. This goes a little bit against the, um, the maternal wall in the sense that it's the more traditional mother, working mother, who is experiencing the relatively best treatment among women. But at the same time, by rewarding her for engaging in that caregiving behavior, you are effectively um, rewarding her for not being as engaged at work, um, or at least not as focused on work, or not being an ideal worker, which could, is consistent with the idea that motherhood is a career penalty and a wall for women that they face. So a summary of these studies is that it appears that gender atypical employees are the ones who are targeted for mistreatment from sexual harassment to not man enough harassment to overall mistreatment, both in terms of occupational role violators, behavioral role violators, and personality style, and then also family role violators. So is the takeaway here to conform to gender roles to avoid this kind of mistreatment <laughs> in the workplace? But what most coworkers like may not be what most superiors respect. So one potential takeaway is if you're getting harassed for being non-traditional in your behavior or your occupation or your domestic role, then you might be more likely to get ahead if you're not getting hazed in the workplace, right? Um, but at the same time, mistreatment and advancement are quite different concepts. Mistreatment is typically a peer dynamic among coworkers that's based on liking and social acceptance and whether you fit in. Advancement, on the other hand, might be argued to be something that's more based on whether you stand out and whether you get noticed by superiors and seen as worthy of respect or daring and bold. So it's possible that those who violate social norms um, are, are seen as more daring and powerful and more likely to get ahead. One anecdote from my own life observation of this was when my nine-year-old daughter really wanted to get a mohawk, <laughs> my husband and I said, are you sure? You know, you might really get teased for having a shaved head and you know, hair that's spiky. And she said, no, I can handle it. And then after about eight months of asking for a mohawk, we finally gave in. So she had this radical mohawk, rainbow color, goes to school, her backpack on in the third grade. And I'm like terrified that she's gonna get harassed and hazed instead her social status went through the roof at school. <laughs> All the older kids thought she was the coolest thing in the world. Everywhere she went, she got complimented for her behavior. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well maybe people who are that self-confident, right, to, to violate or go against the social norm, uh, might be more likely to advance in status. So going to the, a large research university, uh, we looked at the female-dominated support staff and the male-dominated faculty. So it was exactly inverse in terms of proportions. 73% women and 73% men. Again, we measured their agency and their warmth or their assertiveness and their, um, their more feminine personality style. 
their mistreatment, the same measures as you just saw in the family role study. And then we also had measures of their advancement, at least for those who agreed to have their um, data matched with their HR records so that we could track their salaries over time. <coughs> so. Are those numbers? Actually, the numbers are reversed. This is faculty.staff. This is just the advancement data. Yeah. So we only had permission from 86 faculty. And we had permission from 562 of the staff to track. And so we saw a very similar pattern with respect to mistreatment in the female-dominated support staff, as seen in other studies. So it was really agentic women or women with those more assertive personalities who experienced the highest levels of mistreatment. Non-assertive and uh, women experienced the same lack of mistreatment as men and assertiveness didn't matter for men. But when it came to salary increase, uh, it was really women who had a cold personality style <laughs> or non-feminine personality style who were getting raises, significantly higher raises than women with those more feminine personality styles or warmth. For men, it didn't really matter whether they're cold or warm. Did you try to disentangle the assertiveness from the warmth? I can imagine that being assertive is going to be a big plus on your salary increases. Do you know if you've tried to separate those out? Yeah, so this is the result of a regression of sex by warmth by um, agency and then their interaction. So they are separated. Does that make sense? Okay, so maybe I'm misreading. I'm, I'm reading the one on the right as being about cold and warm and the one on the left being about agenting yeah, and not so agenting. Yeah, agency triggered. Oh, but agency doesn't have anything to it do with salary increase. It didn't play a role in salary increases. So here it was sort of the, the cold or tough woman in this occupation who was getting ahead. For men, it was more of a glass escalator effect where they were getting ahead in the steel dominated occupation no matter what. Now for the faculty, which you're probably more interested in <laughs> as probably faculty and future faculty, um, we found a very similar pattern to the prior literature, only here it was both agency and warmth that determined people's levels of mistreatment. So it was women who were agentic and cold, who were significantly more mistreated than other women, and then men were not mistreated, they were agentic and cold. So it was a complete interaction. So the very things that earned women scorn from their colleagues earned men protection from their colleagues, that kind of masculine personality profile. And then when we look at what got them ahead, it was, again, agentic or assertive women who were having the highest salary increase compared to other women. And it was non-agentic or unassertive men who had the highest levels of salary increase. That was unexpected. <laughs> uh, so it appears as though the yes men were getting ahead in this context were the ones who were not challenging um, other men in that environment.
So we found it interesting that there appeared to be stricter gender <coughs> regulation going on in the prestigious male-dominated occupation than in the female-dominated occupation in the sense that agency was what was uh, targeting people for mistreatment, violations and agency in the female-dominated support staff, but both dimensions of gender were targeting uh, people for mistreatment or protection from mistreatment in the male-dominated faculty. And then there were different dimensions of gender that predicted advancement in these contexts. So men and cold women, so warmth was predictive, or the lack of warmth was predictive for women in the female-dominated context, but it was really agency that was predictive in the male-dominated. So what happens, okay, so some of the implications of this research so far is that the leaking pipeline problem that leads to this vertical segregation of the workforce and women in the absence of leadership positions and segregation horizontally means that on the one hand, women who swim up against the current and who are getting hazed and harassed are likely to avoid those contexts, those occupations, and those behaviors that might let them get ahead or do well in the workforce. But those who remain, those who somehow are able to swim against that current, uh, the gender atypical men and women are also more likely to be uh, selected for advancement or seen as standing out than having what it takes. Another implication of this is that because it's gender atypical people, you know, it's possible that this is one of the sources of the stereo negative stereotypes of women in positions of leadership. So ice queen, the cold women getting ahead, iron maiden, queen bees, etc. All these derogatory terms that are used to describe women bosses um, might stem somewhat from the fact that they might be disliked among their peers, but promoted <coughs> by their superiors. And then we had fun trying to think of terms for men who <laughs> were unassertive, who got ahead um, roosters, or the men experiencing the glass escalator in the pink collar um, context, or the female nominated context. Um, we had another study in which the nice guys were getting ahead in the blue collar, and yes, men in the, um, in the white collar are most likely to get ahead. So once women make it, what happens? So some research on sexual harassment has recently shown that women bosses are more likely to be sexually harassed um, than women subordinates and coworkers, and significantly more likely to be harassed than male bosses. So this goes totally against the organizational and economic explanations or conceptualizations of harassment as being an abuse of organizational and economic power. Yes? For the female bosses are harassed by other bosses or by a subordinate? Subordinates and, and bosses, but their subordinates often undermine them or interact with them inappropriately. Yeah. Um, and so another study that we've recently done has looked at whether or not ambition, which is traditionally considered a male characteristic, this is sort of uh, spurred by the ambition gap conversation that went on. Uh, recently <clears throat> with Sheryl Sandberg and also the Confidence Code book that came out and, you know, it's very similar to the 1970s concept of women's fear of success, mm -hmm. you know, that women just don't have enough ambition or confidence to get ahead. It's really their problem. 
um, <clears throat> we measured whether or not men and women were ambitious in a nationally representative sample um, by the importance of prestige and respect to them, how much more power and influence they would like to have, financial rewards, and then again their experiences of mistreatment from their subordinates, their co-workers, and this, their superiors. We found no difference in ambition, interestingly, between men and women. But we did find a very big difference in terms of the consequences of ambition at superior level. So women were significantly more likely to be mistreated by their subordinates if they were ambitious. Uh, for men, it, there was not a significant relationship, even though it looks like it was in the opposite direction. That wasn't significant. It's possible that in other samples it would be. But for women, ambition was really um, led to less cooperation, less respect from their subordinates, leading to sort of a shaky scaffold, consistent with the concept of the last cliff. Women are put in precarious positions, but even when those positions aren't necessarily precarious, they end up being undermined by subordinates. So it could also <coughs> contribute to this who wants to be undermined or an iron maiden, <laughs> you know, hesitance to want to be in that role. Did you look at um, who the gender is ordinance doing the undermining? Like who is whether it's men or women doing the enforcement? We only had the organizational um, status. Yeah, that would be interesting. Given that most men and women are in um, gender segregated roles, probably it tends to be same sex. But, okay. Yeah. I mean I know that when it comes to literature on babies, it's often looking at women who are, you know, um, undermining or having a negative reaction to other women, like in that particular way. Mm -hmm. So I wish we had those data. So in sum, gender is active, actively regulated through social mistreatment at work, from gender and sexual harassment to general mistreatment, discouraging women and men for, from entering and remaining in non-traditional roles at work and at home, which maintains those patterns of gender segregation and inequality that we saw at the beginning of the talk. So, and there's a lot of future directions that we can go with understanding this phenomenon better. Uh, I've done some work on the intersection of sex and race. Um, I think a lot more needs to be done. Uh, physical gender, which was raised earlier, I think would be really interesting to look at. Culture and leadership uh, becomes really apparent when you look at case studies of how important this is. And then separating out the types of mistreatment is one of the ways in which I'm currently thinking about this. So instead of just this general, it's all one bad thing, there's probably specific forms of behavior that are differentially targeted to people who conform or don't conform. It's not only women who don't conform that get targeted for sexual harassment. They're more likely to be targeted, but that kind of overlooks the fact that there are other women experiencing negative um, treatment in the workplace. And Chamberlain and colleagues have a nice typology that I think would be interesting to try to apply of patronizing behavior, that's sort of the benevolent sexism, taunting behavior, that's the more hostile sexism, and predatory behavior, that's kind of the sheer coercion form. And then ostracism and exclusion as well, which keeps getting raised as a real big problem. The absence of negative behavior, uh, 
recent study I have done with Sandra Robinson um, show is shown to be even worse than the presence of negative behavior. I mean, the absence of positive behavior. So ostracism and exclusion in our study was worse for people than harassment. So I think we need to start paying more attention to that. Okay, so we can have ten minutes, I guess, to discuss. I want to different uh, forms of harassment in a way the gender harassment, the um, sexual, Se unwanted sexual attention, sec or unwanted sexual yeah. attention and the coercion. So later in the latter part of your presentation when you use the term sexual harassment, so when your bosses are sexually harassed or, or uppity when they're sexual harassed or that, yeah. did you make a distinction between those three types? Is there a specific type? I combined those likely? three types in those studies okay. because they didn't, they showed the same pattern. Okay. Sexual coercion is still a very low base low, rate, right, so it's hard right. to get ma many effects. But of the other two, so the individual sexual uh, unwelcome attention is yeah. pretty much the same as the derogatory. They're so highly correlated, okay. yeah, that I ended up combining them. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to share a thought on the um, of gender presentation question when it came to harassment. Uh, it's just an anecdote of a friend of mine who is a masculine presenting woman and she, um, just what she describes as butch privilege in that often men who are consciously trying not to, um, you know, to harass or to have sort of gender biases in the workplace and she's in academia, mm -hmm. um, she says she gets a lot of attention from them, a lot of positive attention and is made to feel like one of the boys but what they're actually doing, um, which it, her interpretation of this is that they're um, in thinking oh this woman is, is gender queer and, and you know perhaps feels um, you know, subjugated, I must go out of my way to make her, to show that I'm a really liberal guy and you know that I really, you know, what they're actually doing is is sort of treating her as one of the boys and ignoring feminine presenting women and so mm -hmm. she sees she yeah, she's discussed feeling that she actually has a um, in her experience has been a privilege of being of further included as being a masculine presenting woman that's interesting so yeah. by I guess not being androgynous <laughs> which would be the distinctiveness threat mm -hmm. um, you're reifying those social categories at least not based on biological sex but by on presenting and that there are these two different forms of presentation yeah. and that by presenting as masculine you're still saying there is this category of masculine and that's the one I identify with and that's mm -hmm. potentially less threatening yeah. than a feminine looking woman who acts masculine. Yeah and she would and she would consider herself as having feminine uh, more feminine character traits or uh -huh. um, a, a, a has been conditioned to doubt herself in the way that uh, that feminine presenting women are as well so she says it's quite interesting that just that based on her appearance that she she gets true she gets masculine privileges she so she's she psychologically thinks. feminine but physically masculine it, that, it, her her interpretation of her identity yeah and she um yeah this is something that she's noticed that's yeah. really interesting i think it would be very cool to continue looking into the physical and psychological yeah. dimensions and how they interact. Yeah, and, I, and again, I think that's specific, That's specifically her experience because she works within a university mm -hmm. setting and not within, say, a plant or a, mm -hmm. um, you know, another area where that might be an extra subversion that, that yeah. made her subject to harassment. Yeah. She works with people who, with, with men who think that and they're... And in a male-dominated context. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, men who are in a male-dominated context who present as feminine don't fare very well, but maybe they would in a female-dominated context. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. It's just such fantastic work, especially when you take it all together. It's, it's fantastic. I'm, I'm wondering if you have any evidence of what I'm what I'm thinking of as an echo and echo. So when you first started presenting, you um, presented the work how men get punished for not being masculine enough. And then men tend to punish women for being too masculine. Do you have settings or do you have any evidence of whether the, those um, <coughs> exacerbate one another? Where there's, it, so the, the movie North Country reminded me of it. Where essentially the men are being punished for not punishing the women for not being <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's masculine to punish women for being masculine. So yeah. yeah. Do you see that? I haven't delved into those dynamics. No, I've just looked at the general patterns, but that would require more of a this longitudinal interpretation. Seems like in some sense another form of not man enough. You're not man enough to, so that doesn't come up when men talk about being sexually harassed. They don't talk about sort of treating women well as being harassed about that. Oh yeah, no. There's um, you know that oh. first study men were mentioning that they felt pressured by other men to engage in misogynistic behavior essentially, and that if they didn't, and there is also other work showing that egalitarian men are more targeted for mistreatment. So men who support women are at a greater risk. Um, yeah, so there is that echo effect. <laughs> uh, thank you for the talk, Mary. I was wondering if you had any information on something that I've observed but I don't really have any you know, data on, mm -hmm. as whether these effects may fade when women kind of have already fulfilled their caregiving roles when they're older, mm -hmm. and then they're done with that, and then now they can advance or seem as more able to advance in the workplace. Do you have any information on that? So I didn't um, break out that caregiving study by age. Most of them were clustered in their 40s. Uh, so even the women who chose not to have kids uh, or who didn't have kids, um, they were so targeted for mistreatment that it's not so much that they were past that caregiving role. Is that what you had in mind? Or the I'm, I'm saying that at least in my former workplace, what I saw is that the women that were older and they, their kids were already adults, that's when they were kind of able to break the glass ceiling. So mm -hmm. they had to wait until they've done all that. And then they were... And then they could break it. Yeah, that's a good question. So a uh, study I just conducted with student at the University of Toronto, we looked at the age of children um, and the maternal wall. So we just did a basic maternal wall experimental paradigm where we had people evaluate the resumes of somebody going up for promotion in a law firm, and it mentioned the children's ages. And it was a male or a female, and then no children, toddlers, or teenagers. <laughs> and um, we found that both men and women with toddlers in this study were hit, negatively hit. Um, and that the ones with teenagers were no different than the ones without kids. So it does appear that that maternal wall disappears, which might also explain, like Jennifer Glass in a longitudinal sociological analysis showed that women who switched employers after having their kids, 
later on tended to fare better uh, in wages, etc. As though they had sort of cleaned the slate or started new <laughs> and were no longer attached to the maternal stigma with the employer where they had their babies. So, analyses of how much sexual harassment costs organizations, usually from a more legal and procedural standpoint, but uh, executive function and performance shuts down when you're experiencing sexual harassment or any form of harassment, so or bullying. Um, so your performance declines. And that's part of the problem too. By the time people realize that it's not going to go away and they have to report it, oftentimes they're in a more vulnerable position because of its effects psychologically and professionally on them. So that people can tar say, oh, well, look at, they're not a high performer, they're just coming up with something, right? <laughs> but yeah, it definitely affects performance and organizational productivity. Is that I guess, can I just throw in one? We only have like a minute, but um, one of the things that struck me as so interesting about this is that connecting it to some other work, um, uh, even like Robert Livingston is going to come here in a couple weeks and give a talk about, uh, in his work on dominance, it seems to be this sort of dominance thread of um, the gender stereotypes that is the primary violation for women, going, hooking up with your ambition stuff, you know, that it's, you know, there's this, I think we've, we've evolved in our thinking about women can't be masculine, but there are multiple components. There's usually, we usually think about it as the sort of competence and the dominance component of yeah. masculinism. Mm -hmm. And this, I've never really thought about your research as, as really following in that thread of reinforcing that it is just, it is in particular the dominance component. It's largely about of, dominance. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a study I did of East Asians also showed a similar pattern that East Asians who were dominant were targeted for racial harassment. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it probably intersects somewhat with race. And I'll be interested to hear what Robert Livingston has yeah. to say on that. Because it's possible that for black women, it's, a, it's um, less of a violation, at least of an expectation, a social expectation. Well, he actually finds that they can act um, masculine in st um, racially stereotypic, like sassy ways, mm -hmm. or speaking more directly. Um, but those could be related to like leadership competence. But he's he his my understanding is that the direction his research he was finding is that while they can be more masculine and competent in sort of linguistic ways, mm -hmm. that um, dominance pursuit, ambition, things mm -hmm. like that is still um, not okay yeah. for African American women. Yeah, I think that's, if I'm thinking the same thing, it was particularly when it was self, like ambition for your own self, your own yes. right? Versus, yes. you know, in the service to the organization. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Thank you for making that distinction. Yeah. 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 And they right. would experience backlash when it was ambition for their own advantage. Right. Advan their own right. Exactly. Yeah. So ambition in the yeah. in the excellence of the work versus yeah. ambition for so career advancement. Path. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Why women didn't get when it was not that kind of um, expression. It sounds kind of consistent with your work on 
It is, yeah, right. You're claiming resources, yeah. exactly. Engaging in high saves to claims to high status resources. Yeah. Very interesting. We're all, we're all coming together. <laughs> <laughs> all coming. Exactly. All right, wonderful. Thank Please you. join me in. That was really fabulous, um, connecting on so many levels with that. Um, I hope you'll join us on, uh, you all will join us next week. Uh, Salitha Butler, who is a WAP fellow and assistant professor of business and law and ethics, is, is going to be speaking next week from the Scheller College of Business at uh, the Georgia Institute of Technology on a critical mass of women on boards of directors as critical influencers. So, hope you can join us for that. Thank you. Yeah, that was really